My name is Jacob. I'm one of the ministers here at the Tri-Valley Church of Christ. We are continuing on in a series that we started last week called Death and Dying, trying to help us have a, a biblical understanding of death and a, an anticipation that it's not something that we should be afraid of that's going to come and steal our lives or cause us fear because we have hope in Christ. Anybody have hope in Christ? Okay, then we're, we're not afraid together. And um, we'll see how, how it goes this morning. <laughs> it should be interesting. I'm glad that you're here. We're going to be hanging out in Revelation 21 and 22, so if you have your Bible, you can open up there. We're going to eventually get there. We're going to stop by uh, Luke 13 on the way, so if you're into following along in your own Bible, then that's where we'll be this morning. I want to share with you a story, or just a memory. When I was a kid, my parents didn't grow up going to church. But we had some neighbors that invited my mom to come to a Bible study in their home and then eventually come to worship with them. And I was about four or five at the time. And so, like, going to church was a new thing. But I liked it, and it was fine. And they, the first Bible study I ever remember was this take-home devotional that the church group gave to my mom. And they said, go home and do this with your family. I said, okay, what's this all about? And the exercise that they had us do, I don't remember what the lesson was, as often it goes, but I remember the illustration and the fun game at the beginning was we take a piece of paper and draw your dream house. And as a little kid, I was like, oh, this is exciting. Uh, you could lay out and draw what it was going to look like. Mine, of course, was this big mansion, way bigger than the house that I lived in with my mom and my dad and my sisters. Uh, it had big beds and a swimming pool in the back. But the part that I was most excited about as a four or five-year-old kid was what I called uh, stand-up toilets for the boys. <laughs> my dream house had urinals in them. I had never seen a urinal in someone's house before, but I had seen them at swanky places like McDonald's or the Pig and Pancake, and I wanted a stand-up toilet for the boys in my mansion. I was thinking about this this week because I think similarly, we tend to stock heaven with all of our favorite stuff as we think about what heaven is going to be like or what does it mean to be with God. We tend to just kind of fill it up with all the things that we hope for, all of our favorite things that we experience on earth. So someone could ask you, hey, you know, what is heaven like? And you go, oh, heaven? Heaven's great. It's got all my favorite stuff there. It's very satisfying. Well, for me, you might not like it, but, uh, but my version of heaven is, is very nice for me. And I've heard people before ask the question, would you want to go to heaven if God was not there? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us would answer that question with, sure, as long as my stuff's there. As long as I have my comfort, all my favorite things, as long as I get my stand-up toilet. But we don't realize that when we do this, we might be thinking of heaven not as life with God, but as life as God. And I don't think that's the way we should go. How about instead, instead of creating our own plans for how we're going to spend the afterlife, let's see what we can learn from Scripture about what God has planned for us. There's a key question that I want you to keep in mind this morning, and that is the question, are you willing to go to God's heaven? And as we explore this topic, I want to acknowledge that it's kind of, uh, it's tricky. And I mentioned last week, too, there's a lot of sensitive toes out there that I could run the risk of stepping on. With this topic and this study, there's just so much information. There's no way we're going to answer all of your questions. There's no way I'm going to start and make the promise, you're going to know what heaven is like as soon as we're done here, without any follow-up questions. You will have 
follow-up questions. I am not going to get us very far into the weeds on this topic. A study like that would take a year at least. Uh, this is a list of all of the scriptures that point to clues about what the afterlife is like, about God and heaven and the new creations. I mean, seriously, that is a lot of scripture that we are not going to cover this morning. Uh, <laughs> someone's amening that. Okay, I'm, I'm with you there too. There's books for things like this. If you're the kind of person that wants to get into the weeds and you have, what about this and what about this? And this scripture says this and this scripture says this. There's a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I found this to be very helpful. He's a get into the weeds kind of guy. This is 400 plus pages, heavy, heavy scripture references in there. You might check out that. That's not what I'm going to do this morning, though. Oops, that one will come in a second. What I plan on doing this morning is to persuade you of one thing, and that is you want to be with God. Whatever God has decided to do, you want to be a part of it. It is going to be good, and it will be better than what you could have come up with. And after all, it is what God created us for, relationship with him. That's where we're headed this morning. And now for this next part. <laughs> I used to watch Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting. You guys familiar with this guy? Super chill guy, so fun to watch, incredibly talented artist. He does these landscapes that are so lifelike, and he does it so fast and skillfully, you're just amazed every time. But every time I would watch this show, something would happen about three-quarters of the way through the program. He's working on this, this landscape, it's so realistic, you think he's done. Like, all he's got to do is write his name on the bottom, and then he's done. But then he takes his paintbrush, or his painting knife, and a big glob of paint, and he goes right across the foreground of the image. And you go, what? You just ruined the painting. That was perfect the way it was. And now you covered up the happy little trees. We get really this sense of anxiety about what went wrong. Everything was great. And now you've ruined it. But then you keep watching. And you realize that he continues on with what he had planned. Uh, he doesn't listen to your advice or input. And the brushstroke that we didn't fully understand becomes this magnificent shimmering pond or a beautiful flowering valley. And the painting was even better than it was before. I was thinking about this because the same is true about trusting God with life after death. There may be some things that we don't fully understand. There may be some scriptures that we read that just seem wrong to us. But my encouragement for you this morning is let the master work. Let's look at the biblical picture of heaven, and then we'll look at God's ultimate plan for being with humanity and see what we can work. This first part is just sort of a 30,000-foot overview, some examples in Scripture. We're going to kind of blast through this pretty quickly. Last week we said that Jesus and Paul and most of the New Testament writers, they talk about death. There's an implied two-stage post-mortem experience. If you're like, what? You can go and listen to the recording from last week because we got into it a little bit. Uh, before the resurrection, there's this temporary stage that they talk about. They refer to it as sleep. Nod your head if this is sounding familiar from last week. I know it was a long ways uh, from now. Or they call it paradise or being with Jesus. And then stage two is the part that includes the resurrection of the dead and the new heavens and the new earth, like the passage that Roger read for us. Heaven is where God is. Heaven is God's space. And throughout the Bible, there are times when heaven breaks through and heaven and earth meet up. There's this overlapping 
Sometimes people meeting God in person, or there's angels, these messengers from heaven, bringing God's language to people and instructions. And there's a big example of this right at the beginning of the Bible, and that is in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God is with his creation, which is what he intended for all time. In Genesis 1.1, you guys might know what this verse is off the top of your head. The very first verse in the Bible is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I have to admit that for a long time, I thought about the heavens and the earth like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and here they are, way out yonder, and they're really, really good, and this is where God hangs out, and the earth. And it's fine. It's, I mean, God said it was good, so it's, it's okay, but it's way down here, and God just sort of commutes here every once in a while. That was my understanding, and I'm not really sure where that comes from. Maybe it's all the post-Genesis 3, sin, curse, fall stuff. But if I think about it like this instead, I think I get a clearer picture of God's love for humanity, God's love for his creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you look at the creation narrative, you see God is present with his creation. He interacts with people. He walks and talks and and touches and and visits. And it's this closeness. These two things were designed to go together. But in my mind, I separated them. And as you get to Genesis chapter 3, you get... Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, and now they're ashamed, and they're hiding from God. And again, in my mind, when I think about that, it's like, okay, that's because God was up here in heaven where he lives, and they were left on their own just to kind of do their best, and they messed up pretty early on. So God takes the bark down to earth and goes, hey, where'd you guys go? I can't find you. And they say, ah, oh, we messed up. And he goes, oh, no. Well, now i got to go live in heaven where it's safe, and you guys work things out here on earth. But that's not even what the story says. But that's, that's what was in my mind. The story is, heavens and the earth, they sin, God comes to them, and it's not that God gets ejector seated back out into heaven where he, he's protected from all the sin of earth. It's them that get ejected. They're banished from the garden. No, you can't be in the garden anymore where I am. They are escorted out. They have to go someplace else. But where does God go? Does he go away? Or is he still, is he still close by? Is he still near us. There's definitely a shift from life in the garden with God, but God is not as far away as we sometimes think. And if heaven is the space where God is, wherever God is, then that's where heaven is, then heaven is not as far away as we sometimes think either. Indeed, God continues to speak throughout the story of the Bible, throughout salvation history. He speaks to people like Abraham and Sarah and Lot and Hagar and Jacob and Moses And Joshua, even Balaam, Gideon, Samson's mother, Hannah, and then all throughout the prophets. God is is involved. God is close. He's not far away in making the commute. And there's these times when heaven and earth overlap in certain places here on earth. If you think about Moses and Mount Sinai, the people are down at the base of the mountain, but Moses is able to go up and have this closer audience with God because that's where God breaks through. And then in the places like the tabernacle, where God said, this is where you can find me. This is where I will be accessible to my people. And then later on in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting, a little side note, so I'll step over to the side. Just You don't need this part, but it's fun and interesting anyway. As Roger was reading the description of uh, what, what, what was revealed to him, the new heavens and the new earth, you might have gone, like, this is kind of tedious. Like, there's a lot of stones, there's a lot of names, there's a lot of, I don't know, what are we supposed to do with this? I think one of the reasons there's so much description here is that it's the description of something that only God can make. 
There's like a pearl that's more huge than any other pearl that exists on earth. They're making this point that this is something that God creates. It's not something that we could ever compete with. And an interesting detail that you might have missed is that when it describes the the measurements of the city that that is going to come down, it's like 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and then 1,500 miles high, which we go, what do you even do with that? That's pretty high. But it's a perfect cube. And if you remember back from the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. This is the place where God would be. And only the priests could go in there. And only once a year they could have an audience with God. That was a perfect cube as well. The Holy of Holies was this perfect cube. Then John comes along and he's given this vision that says, okay, there was this one small space that only one person could go and access God. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there's this other, better Holy of Holies. And it's a cube too but you can get a lot more people in there. God will be with his people. Anyway, I find that to be really, really exciting, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but like I said, that was a little side note. God breaks through. And then the presence of God, as we know, is once again with us in Emmanuel, the coming of Christ. Jesus is God with us. You can't keep God away from his people. Heaven wants to break through. And sometimes, Heaven breaks into people's lives, but sometimes people are given the opportunity to look and see what heaven is up to on earth. Sometimes heaven comes this way, and sometimes people from earth are allowed to glimpse what's going on the other direction. There's the story of the prophet Elisha, who's able to see the armies of angels that weren't visible to anyone else, and he's given this confidence, and he's like, you're going to win this battle because there's a lot more going on than you currently see, but I'll give you a look. And then in Acts chapter 7, after the resurrection of Jesus and at the foundation of the church, There's this Christian named Stephen. He's he's being stoned to death for declaring that Jesus is Lord publicly. He's about to die. Like he's, He's having rocks thrown at him. And what happens? He looks and he sees heaven being opened. And he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. I think about these passages and these experiences and I realize that heaven is not as far away as we think. And if we got the glimpse like some of these these people throughout Scripture have gotten the chance to look. We'd be looking at something that's a lot closer than we realize. It's not like Stargate, like a teleporter where, you know, you you stick your arm through in California and now your arm's in Cleveland or something like that. I'm sure Amazon will come up with that technology eventually. But we think about heaven like that sometimes. If we can pray to God, our message is going far, 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 far away. I pray in a whisper sometimes. And I think that God still hears me. I think that God is close by. But regardless of heaven's spatial location, like I said, heaven is where God is. And with God is a good place to be. That's something else that scripture tells us. Our time with God after we die is a time and place of rest and refreshment. We saw last week that Paul describes it as something that is better by far than being here. And Jesus often describes it as a banquet. He uses this imagery of a feast a celebration, and a fellowship with God and with others. It's a party that you don't want to miss. But, as we're listening to Jesus talk about this celebration that we want to be a part of, we have to listen to his warnings about missing out on the banquet. Because I think he talks about that even more than he talks about the banquet himself. He talks about how great it's going to be, but then he also gives these stern and sobering warnings about those who will not be able to partake in it. He tells parables like uh, the parable of the weeds and the net and the wedding banquet, the wicked servant 
the sheep and the goats, and he gives these glimpses of people who are left outside of the feast. They are not part of the celebration. They're out in the dark. Describes them as being in pain and agony. Some language in the, in the Gospels say that it's eternal punishment, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and of the classic image of being burned by fire. So a lot of this comes from Jesus. And we can't just sweep it aside and say, ah, that's not very pleasant. Let's not talk about that. In Luke chapter 13, people ask Jesus about this. You know, what's it going to be like? What's going to happen? Um, And he gives them an honest answer. Jesus went through the towns and villages, uh, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter but will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first will be last. This is another area in which people find it difficult to let the master work. Many people are uncomfortable with the idea that God would shut the door on anyone. Even Christians sometimes subscribe to the common view that good people go up and bad people go down. That's how the system works, right? And as long as there are people in the world like Hitler, who set this really, really dramatic standard for badness, we all consider ourselves to be generally Pretty good. I'm not Hitler, after all. But what we find in Scripture is that the measuring stick is not whether or not you are really good or really bad. It's whether or not you know Christ. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to us, because this is how we act in our relationships as well. We don't think of anything, we don't, we don't think anything of it when someone says, oh, you know, I didn't invite this person to my party because, you know, we just sort of drifted apart. They don't call anymore. I don't really see them or run into them or talk to them anymore. But when Jesus says the same thing here, if I know you, you're in. But if you wanted nothing to do with me, if you didn't actually believe in me, you didn't do anything about it with your life, if you don't belong to me, then you've kind of made your own choice. That makes us uncomfortable. And on the other side of it, too, Many people are uncomfortable with the idea that God is going to welcome heinous criminals and sinners into this banquet if they've changed and have turned their lives to Jesus. What do we do with this? The truth of the matter is God's heaven does have a guest list and we are not in charge of it, it turns out. But we are given the opportunity to RSVP. And I think that we should. And I think that we should want others to come as well. Scriptures like these ones show us how to do that. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe that his death and resurrection conquered death once and for all. 
And we believe not just with our minds and like, oh yeah, I agree with this, but we believe with our life, with the choices that we make. And we commit to following Jesus. We belong to him. We journey with him by being baptized. We die to ourself. We receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, and we, come, we become this new creation in Christ. It's the J word, right? We don't like that. Judgment. People want to pretend that it's not there. And it all works out in the end. But part of this exploration, part of this study, is not making our own heavens, but seeing what God has in mind. And this is part of it. And whether this judgment happens before or after the resurrection is something that's debated among people that study this heavily. Some say that it's both. But in Revelation, John shares with us his glimpse of what God has in store for those who do accept the invitation. And that brings us to Revelation 21 and 22. I've mentioned this before. I think I mention this every time I talk about Revelation. But it can be a very intimidating and confusing book because it was written in a certain style that we don't all the way understand. There's a lot of symbolic imagery there. There's like some, oh, that can't be real. That's just an expression. Or this seems like it could be real. And people tend to get lost in it. And what happens is people largely just disregard it or ignore it. But somebody explained to me one time, the revelation is simply that. It is the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Kind of like those other guys in Scripture who got to have a glimpse of what was going on in the heavenly realms. John gets to see from a spiritual angle what is happening to those who are faithful to Christ in Rome at the end of the first century, during a time where Christianity was not welcomed, because Christians said, Jesus is Lord. And Rome wanted you to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't say that, you got punished. So this is a letter of encouragement for those who are holding to this truth. Jesus is Lord. And then John gets this glimpse of what God will do at the time of the resurrection of the faithful. So let me read the first five verses of chapter 21 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be, the, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Notice here that rather than us going someplace far away, heaven comes down to us and overlaps with earth again, once and for all this time. Eternal life in God's future, in God's heaven, eventually happens here. I was watching the Super Bowl last Sunday. It was not a very good Super Bowl, in my opinion. But there was one interesting moment that I thought, yes, yes, and it was a Super Bowl commercial for a new Audi. Uh, it didn't make me want to buy an Audi, but it, it tuned me in. Do you remember this one? This guy, is, he's in heaven. He's in this classical view of heaven where he's at this uh, peaceful field. He sees his grandpa. And then, according to Audi, heaven is like you get to test drive this, this fancy new electric Audi that they made. But then suddenly, he's jerked back into reality because it turns out he's choking on a cashew. And one of his coworkers is giving him the Heimlich maneuver. 
And he's like, oh, man, I missed out on heaven. But the end of this commercial ended with this tagline, and this is what I thought was interesting. A thrilling future awaits on earth. I saw that. I was thinking about this, and I went, yes, that is what the picture of Revelation is showing us. An exciting future awaits. This might be hard for us to imagine, especially if you're like me and you, you've thought about heaven and earth being like this for a long time. This is heaven way far away. It's better. It's great. It's, it's uh, non-physical. And when we go there, we're going to be immaterial. We're going to be ghostly or, or something like that. And an earth is, you know, it's just sort of like a throwaway kind of thing. If that's your understanding, then this revelation is going to be hard for you to imagine or even want to be a part of. But the idea that, that heaven is far away and that it's something that we need, the earth is something we need to escape and that there's everything that is non-physical is better. This idea comes more from Plato than it does from the Bible. This ancient philosopher and a lot of other people at the time were saying the material is bad, and the whole goal of life is to escape the material, the body, the things of this earth, and to go to this realm where things are non-material, which are better. The hardest, one of the biggest, oops, where are we? One of the biggest challenges that early Christianity had was this idea that Jesus was not really flesh. They were saying, well, if Jesus was God, then he couldn't have actually had a body. And these people were going like, well, he did have a body, and we saw it. Well, then he can't be God, because if something is divine, it can't be material. You think that God had a body? That's gross. That's That's a messed up idea that did not compute for people back then. And they rejected Jesus because of this. And the church was just fighting against this because they were saying, like, No, I I know that doesn't sound like what you're expecting. I know that's not what you think, but this is what we experienced. This was the gospel that was held on to. If you read some of the other gospels at the time, sometimes people ask, like, why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And why not Thomas and Philip and Judas and all these other gospels that are floating around out there? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that those witnesses don't affirm either the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus. He must not have been real. He must not have been in flesh because of this idea this Platonic, Gnostic thought that was really prevalent at the time. And the reasons that Christians kind of bucked up against that is because that's not what the Bible says. What about God creating the heavens and the earth together? And what about God looking at his creation and saying, I did a good job. This wasn't a fluke. This wasn't like a styrofoam cup that was meant to be thrown out anyway. God created us and he said, it is very good. But many of us struggle, like they did, with the idea of a bodily resurrection and the idea of a new heavens and a new earth that happens in a physical form. How does that work? I, that's, I, I can't picture that. That's not something that makes sense to me. If you, everybody was raised and they're hanging out here on this planet, there's not going to be enough room for all of these people. But remember, behold, I am making everything new. Bodies are new. The city is new. Heaven is new. Earth is new. Yeah, but how? Like, how does that even work? If you're confused now, that's good, because you should be. (laughs) It's confusing. And the people who encountered Jesus in his resurrection body, they were confused as well. You remember some of these scenes, these post-resurrection accounts that we have. Jesus was unrecognizable to some people. They were talking with him, and they thought he was somebody else. They were walking and talking with him, and he doesn't even reveal himself until the very end. And they go, Oh, I think that's Jesus. They turn to find him, and boom, he disappears from their sight. They're going, what? 
Things are different. Things are new. What is going on here? He's able to move through uh, locked doors. How did he work that out? But at the same time, he's like eating fish with them. And they're checking out the nail marks that are on his hands from his crucifixion. And it's just very, very strange and confusing. And that was just on the current earth. That was new Jesus and his new body on the current earth. What is going to happen when there's a new heaven and a new earth that we are invited to experience? It's at this point that a lot of us just get exhausted and get tired and go like, ah, I can't go there. I'm just going to hold on to my stand-up toilet and say, that's, that's how heaven's going to be. Just the way that I always thought. But let the master work. Hang in there. Here is what happens. God dwells with his people in heaven. Heaven is God's space. That's what heaven is. And if we get to be a part of that, we get to be with God. Heaven is an undoing of being banished from the Garden of Eden. It is a triumphant reunion, and it is with God. And again, that's a place that you want to be. Let's look at one more verse, and then I'll try to wrap things up here. Revelation 22, the first five verses. I'm going to read these again, but as I do, I want you to pay attention to which of the details that are described here sounds the most shocking to you. What seems the most out of place, or maybe the most surprising? Okay? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's the strangest part of that? Maybe reigning with with God forever? What, What does that do? What's our job? What does that look like? There's no night. We've always experienced night, day, night. That's when we sleep, typically. There's not going to be any need for that. There's going to be this light that is Christ. I read this, and I was thinking about this, this tree uh, where, where a river flows, but the tree is on either side of the bank. How, how does that work? Is it a really big tree? Is it a two-part tree? Ah, these things are hard for me to picture. But I think that when the early Christians read this, maybe the most shocking part of it for them was this. They will see his face. Because that's not something that we ever get to do. That's not an experience that we've had before. Moses got really close to God, but he wanted to see his face. He's like, uh, no, you would die if that happened. I'll walk by, you can see my back, maybe, and that was still an amazing experience for Moses. Some of the people I mentioned before saw God, but only through his messengers. Humans have not been able to see the face of God, but it's something that we long for. A lot of the Psalms talk about seeking the face of God, getting closer and closer to returning to our Creator, who is the author of love and peace and joy and family and all these things that we just want to ask Him about, that we just want to be in His presence and be face-to-face with God that we haven't gotten to do. We may come close, and hopefully our goals as Christians is to come closer and closer and have that relationship with God become more and more real. But none of us have seen God face-to-face. But that's what heaven is like. You ask the question, 
What happens in God's heaven? The answer is God dwells with his people and we get to see his face. And there's no more death or crying or mourning or pain, which is something that's, even that is hard for us to imagine because we haven't even lived a moment of our lives without those things looming and being a possibility throughout. Being with God is where we want to be. There could be nothing better than that. If it's with God, that's where I want to be. Samuel Rutherford put it like this, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven for me, for thou art all the heaven I want. So I want to end this morning where we began, by asking you some important questions. Are you willing to go to God's heaven, even if it's not the heaven that you always pictured? Are you willing to let the master work? Are you willing to let God be the creator of heaven and not us? Are you willing to be part of heaven if it's a physical place? So what a lot of these scriptures that uh, talk about it point to. Are you willing to be a part of heaven where there's meaningful work to be done rather than just hanging out on a cloud? Because that's what scripture says. Are you willing to be a part of heaven that is much a city as it is a garden? Are you willing to be a part of heaven that excludes evildoers and those who have not acknowledged Christ? Are you willing to be a part of heaven that contains heinous sinners who have repented and are forgiven? Like I said, these are important questions. What you believe about then impacts what you do now. I talked about that a little bit last week. If you think that you're going to a heaven where you're in charge and it's stocked full of all of your favorite things, then you're going to live your life like you're in charge. And you're going to gather all of your favorite things around you. And you're going to make yourself as comfortable as possible until the time comes when you just go to a more comfortable place. That's one view of heaven. But if you believe in a heaven where God's kingdom comes and where God's will is done, then you're going to live your life letting the master work and letting him work through you. And you're going to be so ready that the new heavens and the new earth will not be able to wait until the time of the resurrection. They will start to burst through little by little, even now. I'm going to close with a story and a scripture. The story comes from F.J. Boudreaux, this French priest guy from 1871. He writes this story that I think gives us this understanding or kind of paints this picture of what it'll be like to see God face to face, to have this experience that is so unlike our current experience. And then the scripture is uh, Paul from 1 Corinthians 13. A kind-hearted king, while hunting in a forest, finds a blind orphan boy, totally destitute of all that can make life comfortable. The king... Moved with compassion, takes him to his palace. He adopts him as his own and orders him to be cared for and educated in all that a blind person can learn. It is almost needless to say that the boy is unspeakably grateful and does all he can to please the king. When he has reached his 20th year, a surgeon performs an operation on his eyes by which his sight is restored. Then the king, surrounded by all his nobles and amid all the pomp and magnificence of the court, proclaims him one of his sons and commands all honor and love, or all to honor and love him as such. And thus, the once friendless orphan becomes a prince, and therefore a partaker of the royal dignity, of the happiness and glory which are to be found in the palaces of kings. I will not attempt to describe the joys that overwhelm the soul of this fortunate young man 
when he first sees that king, of whose manly beauty, goodness, power, and magnificence he had heard so much. Nor will I attempt to describe those other joys which fill his soul when he beholds himself, his own personal beauty, and the magnificence of his princely garments, whereof he had heard so much heretofore. Much less will I attempt to picture his exquisite, unspeakable happiness when he sees himself adopted into the royal family, honored and loved by all, together with all the pleasures of life within his reach. Each one may endeavor to imagine his feelings, joy, and happiness. We can only say that all this taken together is a beautific vision for him. And this is what Paul says. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You got it. Let's stand and worship.